Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, 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 my friends, to uh, Blog Talk Radio's Off the Shelf. Had a little trouble logging in this morning for Saturday, July the 7th, uh, 2012. I'm calling in from the city of brotherly love, as I always tell you, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it's supposed to be smoking here today. They said it's supposed to get up maybe to 103 and feel like 115, and I hope that does not happen, but it's supposed to be a hot, hot, hot day here in Philly. So for those of you who are here in Philadelphia, the East Coast, Get somewhere and stay cool. This is the kind of heat you don't want to fool around with. I want to thank you all for joining us here this morning. As I always tell you, it is an absolute joy having you here with us. For those, we have so many loyal listeners because we are going into our eighth year. I can hardly believe it. Eight years, eight years off the shelf on on air. Uh, we started at Blake Radio, where we still air over at Blake Radio. No Blake owns that Rainbow Soul, and we also hear Blog Talk, and it's been eight years on two stations, and I'm 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 so so appreciative for all of you who have tuned in for these going eight years. It's just amazing for those who just. You checking out the internet is Saturday morning. You're like, you know what? I want to listen to something. What am I going to listen to? And you just happen to cruise on over to Off the Shelf. I want to introduce myself to you. I'm your host, Denise Turney, and as I previously told you, I'm coming to you live from the city of brotherly love, the one and only Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And, oh, my goodness, on July the 4th, if you would have been here for the 4th of July show, it was phenomenal. As always, moving forward, I just thank you, thank you, thank you for your support, and thank you again. And I encourage you to not let another day pass. You want to read this story. Everybody who has read this book has told me how much they have enjoyed it. I mean, tremendously enjoyed it. You know, some people tell you they like something, they just being nice. But you can tell when somebody really enjoys something, they are like, wow. So I encourage you to pick up a copy of my new book, Love Pour Over Me. You're going to get mystery and romance, intrigue, and some of the most fabulous friendships and complicated relationships in Love Pour Over Me. And you can pick up a copy of Love Pour Over Me today at any online or offline retailers because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. So you can go If you don't see it on the shelves in the store, just ask the clerk for it, and they can order it for you. But it's at Amazon. You can get it at uh, Google Books, iTunes, Ingram Digital, Barnes & Noble, and ebook it, ebookit.com, E-B-O-O-K-I-T.com. Has it in ebook format for three ninety nine, and that's the cheapest I've seen. That's ebookit dot com for three ninety nine, and the book is almost four hundred pages, so that is a steal. It's in ebook and in print. You can also check out Love Pour Over Me at my website, which is www.chistel.com. That's C H I S T E L L dot com. Again, C H I S. T-E-L-L.com. And while you're there, you can also check out my other books, which you can also get online and in bookstores everywhere. And now to the moment that you have been waiting for. Let us go and meet our special guest. Today's off-the-shelf feature guest is Marsha O'Connor. And Marsha is the author of Odyssey of Survival. I love the title of that book. Odyssey of Survival, that's a title that can stick with you when you hear it and, and, and make you wonder, what is that story about? Marsha Hales from Jamaica, and she came to the United States in 1982. In addition to writing books, she also helps organize ministries like like Gift of Hope, and I hope I say this right, Closet Closet. And as if that isn't enough, she also hosts a daily radio show on Christian Internet Radio. Marsha would just love it, absolutely love it, if you visit her online at http, D-E, and then you got to do the forward slash, forward slash, D-E-V-S-T-A-G-7.A-N-G-E-L-I-T-E-K.com. So I'm going to try to pronounce it, devstage7.angelitek.com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Marsha. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Thank you so very much. Thank you for having me on this morning. I am yeah, so it, is, it, it is good. 
It's so good to have you here. And uh, a good friend of mine, Nicole Titus, she's the author of a book, Akin to No One, a phenomenal book. I always tell people about that book. It's one of my all-time favorites. And my other friend, Maxine Thompson's Ebony Tree, those two, I love those books. But uh, Nicole is uh, is from Haiti. All her writing is just she is just phenomenal, and so it's it is. I'm I'm excited to meet another author. Well, you're from Jamaica, Nicole. Nicole is from Haiti, but I'm excited to meet another author from outside of the United States. I own off the shelf. I think I've interviewed maybe four or five authors who weren't, you know, a native from the United States of America, and that is always such a joy. And our listeners love love. When uh, authors from other countries dial in, I wanted to ask you to begin. Are you the first person in your family to write a book? Are you the first person that you know of who ever sat down and wrote a book in your family? No, I'm not. No, I am not. My younger sister is actually my inspiration, Audrey. She wrote two books in poetry. The first book is called Bareface Picnic. It's written in Jamaican dialect called Patois. Oh, it is so hilarious. It can be gotten not in the United States, but in Jamaica. And then she wrote a second book, in, um, also poetry, and that is called The Jembe, which means drums in, in Africa, but it's poetry. And whenever I am down or whenever I need a good laugh, I pick up mm-hmm. my favorite, their face speaking, and just read her poetry. It depicts her life um, of, of abuse, which is what my book is pretty much about, but in, in poetry, in the dialect, and it is just awesome. Wow. So you that is amazing. So your sister is she older or is she the older sister? She's younger. She's two down. She okay. is um, four years my junior, yes. But okay. you know what it is? Sometimes when we go through so much turmoil in our lives, we must mm-hmm. find ways of release. And if that's the way of release both of us have found to to get these things out of us is to write it down. Wow, you know, and that that I agree with you and I've heard other writers say it and uh, and, and sometimes when people go to therapy, they will actually recommend that you keep a journal or a diary and write your get your feelings down. But I think writing can be very therapeutic and help us to work through, uh, you know, experiences that have caused us to feel pain. I wanted to ask you, you're not the first in your family who wrote your sister was, and you said she inspired you. How did your family respond when they first saw your <laughs> When they first saw your published book, I know, you know, when your friends are excited and your family sometimes are like, wow, just to hold your book in their hands for the first time. How did they respond when you brought them your published book? I'm laughing because that was, there was mixed reception. Half of my family was happy that I finally written about it. And to tell you the truth, nobody knew about my story. We all knew because if you read the book, if you read the book, you'll see that we went through years of abuse. But I told no one my personal story. So when oh. they read the book, even all the years of writing, I told no one exactly what had happened to me and, and all of that, you know. And so half of my family was happy. But two of my sisters actually told me that they were no longer my sisters because they were so oh, mad at me. Oh, my goodness. Yes, they were so mad at me for actually putting it in print. Now, now people would identify them, one of my sisters said. She's still in Jamaica, and in Jamaica it's a close society. Everyone knows abuse is going on, yeah. everybody knows all these things, but nobody talks about it. And so the, the fact that I wrote about it, and I didn't hide, I, I, I of course um, changed the names, but the locations are the same. And so she said, now people will be able to identify me. I said, sweetheart, they already know who you are. They know what we went through. But now, now, about, just about Mother's Day, both of my sisters who were angry called me and said, we are so sorry. We miss you so much. We love you so much. Oh. And we're here to support you. And so now we're all back. Now everybody is helping me. Oh, trying to my gosh. Yes, yes. Oh, it's amazing to see how, how the good Lord works. That is, that is, and we, and you, you know, you gave your sister space to work through, and that's good, because sometimes if we don't give people space, we can prolong, you know, their anger or whatever. Just let them work through it, work, the good Lord work with them, and then eventually it'll come back around. You know, that's, I, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, uh, about the abuse, and, and whether it's domestic violence or, or incest or whatever abuse, emotional, the, the psychological that we one of the first things I've noticed and I'm particularly right now thinking about domestic violence 
we like to hide. Yes. We like to hide. We don't want nobody else to know. But it's in the hiding that it continues. It's in the hiding that, that it so continues. Hard. Yeah, we don't want anybody else to know, and we're we, we, we're embarrassed. We think other people think, what's wrong with you or what's wrong with your family? And everybody's got something that they deal with, so I don't know why we hide. It, it, it's, it's silly because I have things I deal with, you do, with the next person, the next person, but we almost act like, the, everybody else is perfect except us, and we don't want them to see this little spot. So it's, I think I, I think commend you. A big part of it is fear. We're afraid how we will be received by society. Yes. We're afraid of what our yes. friends will think about us. Because most of us, including myself, I projected the good parts in my life. There were very few good parts, but even the bad parts, I tried to make people think that I came yeah. from this good family, which was not true at all. And the the person who abused me, I tried to make that person out to be such a good person. It was good in some ways, but years of sexual abuse. And so I was afraid. And in the preface of my book, that's what I said. How can I tell anyone? I have formed a web um, around my life. I have, I have tried to hide all of these things. I hear the fact that my mother would spit in my face every time she called my name or every time I did something or we are humiliating me would be to spit in my face. I hear the fact that she would kick me down on the floor and trample it in my stomach. I hear the fact that and the first day she, she, she personally took me to my abuser. When I tried to ask her, she said, if you ever open your mouth, I'm going to pull out your tongue and use it to hang you. How could I tell those yeah. things when one How could I? Yeah, you know, and that... that and, and I'm sure you've had an impact on on your mom and the, uh, the other the person who abused you, even if you're, you're not aware of it. Particularly if we if we continue to respond in love, although we do need to get ourselves out of those situations. That is that is I, I, I oh my God! You can see where our own lack of knowledge and and what we know and what we think is right can cause us to do some vicious things, and we won't even really see that it's that wrong. We just won't even see it until our eyes are open. You know, I was blind, but now I see. Before the show closes, I wanted to ask you, before the show closes, if you would read an excerpt. I don't know if you can, but I wanted to ask you to give you time if you can read an excerpt from Odyssey of Survival. It'll be be several minutes from now. Okay. Yes, I can. Oh, I appreciate that. When did you decide, Marsha, that you wanted to write novels? And was there an event that happened that made you say, or books, that I want to write a book? And if so, can you tell us about that event? It was not a conscious decision. It was in 2004 after relocating from Florida to Georgia. And I was, I'm was a real estate agent, and I was waiting for my license for reciprocity, and it was taking a little longer. And the $5,000, which I left Florida with, had been depleted. I moved here. I left my husband of 25 years in Florida for 25 years of abuse after a childhood of abuse, and I just couldn't take it anymore. So my 16-year-old daughter, I took her and we moved here to Atlanta, Georgia. And things were so hard. I was not working. My money was done. My husband is quite wealthy, refused to help us because... His thing was, if, if I didn't send you any place, if you come back home, you, oh. you don't have any needs. I said, well, if things were good, I would not have left in the first place. And because of the trauma and all the, the traumatic experiences of my life, I was suicidal. And it was when I tried to commit suicide the third time. My daughter was at school, who I love her more than my own life. But even that, Denise, could not stop me from thinking that I could not live another day. I was going to soup kitchens to get food. I was I I just couldn't my head never stopped. My brain never stopped working. I was just thinking about my life day and night, crying out to God, why? I cannot do this anymore. And I was I, I took a shower one morning and I decided to commit suicide for the third time. But before I took the handful of pills because I've had I've, I've had colon surgery six weeks earlier mm-hmm. before leaving Florida. So I had all these medications. And while I drank the water and was about to fill my mouth up with all these prescription pills, I cried out to God one more time, God, send someone or I'm going to kill myself. And believe it or not, there was a knock on my door. Wow. Oh, a knock my God. me, yes. And I, I was startled when, when my, someone knocked on my door. And I didn't get up. The person knocked again. And I put my glass down and I put the pills down. 
and I tried to dry my eyes and walk to the door. By the time I got to the door, someone was pounding on my door. I looked through the people, and I saw there's a friend of mine. And I opened the door, and he said, are you okay? I said, what do you want? And, he, of course, he could see that I was traumatized and I'd been crying. And so he came in, and I just started to cry. And for the first time in 52 years, I just started to talk. I said, I can't take it anymore. He said, I've known you for 15 years. What is going on? What can't you take anymore? And I just started to pour out my soul. I just started to tell him of all the abuse and everything, and I just couldn't live with it anymore. And, you know, he told me afterwards that he was on his way to work, and he had to drive past the, the complex I lived in. And he said as he drove past, a voice said to him, go and check on Marcia. And he wow. said, oh, I'll talk to her later. And the voice said to him, go and check on Marcia. And he said, why do I need to check on her? In his mind, you know, I talked to her later. And he said as he got down the street to, to head on to 75, almost as if someone sitting next to him said, go and check on Marcia. And he said he got out of the lane, made a U-turn, and came back. And wow. saved my life. And that wow. night, I laid in bed just crying and crying. And I said, God, help me. Why? What do I need to do to get over this? And God told me to write. I said, write what? He said, write your story. And I said, write my story. Who wants to read that? And God told me, start writing. Your miseries will become your ministry. You will be able to help others. And I got up. I took a, a piece of paper or a book and started writing. Wow. You know, I've heard so many people say that a lot of times that you're your what we're sent here to do is somehow tied in to uh a hardship that we've gone through. I don't understand sometimes that um I don't know, I don't know, I guess it makes us fishers to go out and meet people. But if each generation keeps going through pain, it seems like an endless, senseless cycle to me. So I don't know, there, there, there's probably something else behind the scene that I'm just not aware of, but th- that definitely, that, that, that your friend, and, I, and, and when those events happen to me, when I'm told, I just feel this strong urge to call somebody or to pray for somebody. Yeah. I have had several instances where I heard what a person was in the hospital, or and I didn't know it at the time, but yeah. spirit does move on us, and so... I think sometimes some things happen to people because we don't act on it. We 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 think in our own mind, we rationalize and say, oh, I got time, I'll visit her later. And later might be too late. So yeah. <laughs> when something yeah, tells you to move now, yeah. yes, yeah. you better, oh, man, praise God and, and bless your friend and yourself that you were willing to, you were willing to let yourself be healed. Uh, I was going to ask you, what was it like growing up in Jamaica? And how did your childhood experiences influence the writer you are today? And you've told us about some of that. Now, you, your book, your book, Odyssey of Survival, it's nonfiction, correct? Correct. That is correct. That is my true life story. And, and, and how, how old were you, Marcia, when you came to the United States? And did your whole family come? I know, I know you said you had two sisters still in Jamaica. But how old were you when you came to the United States? And how many people from your family came to the U.S. with you? And what type of an adjustment was it like moving from Jamaica to the United States? Well, I left Jamaica at the age of 24. I was the first person in the United States, but prior to my leaving Jamaica, um, four of my older sisters had already moved to Canada. Okay. So when I left Jamaica, I actually went to Canada first, and I lived there for nine months. But my poor little and tropical blood could not take that winter. <laughs> I arrived in, in Canada December 3rd, and I was, oh. I was never going to be for nine months until I said, I can't do this. Oh, <laughs> and so, okay. And I knew no one in the United States, had no friends. But prior to leaving Jamaica, an older lady left to Jamaica for, for the United States. And the day before she left, she said to me, if you ever want to come to America, call me. And she gave me her phone number. And I had that phone number for years. I stuck it wow. away in a wallet. And when I was in Canada and wanted to leave, I knew I did not want to go back to Jamaica. I looked for my old purse. I found the, the number. I called her, and she said, come on. Just a couple of years ago, I said to myself, boy, that was so stupid. What if she had not showed up at the airport to get me? What would I have done? But, but, but at the time, I didn't think about that. I just wanted to leave Jamaica. Yeah. But to go back and answer your questions, I, I had a nice childhood, I should say, 
am comfortable childhood. My father was my father was there, the love of my life, and he, we we just played around, never lifted a hand against any of us, and so we enjoyed that. The problem with with my life is our mother was a very abusive lady. Uh, we come to realize that she must have been mentally ill, and so okay. we but we had daddy. Thank God we had daddy, and so life was good. We were poor people, as most Jamaicans are, as many Jamaicans are, but but life was good. But when I was 12 years old, the abuse started, the sexual abuse, where my mother pretty much sold me to my godfather, who was the minister in the government, whose name I will not reveal. Even in the book, I changed his name. And from there on, my life just became a living hell. I would be taken out of school, the chauffeur's car would come and get me, and that was my life. I just became a sex slave until I was, yeah, so 17 years old, I got pregnant, not, not for him. I was in church. I got pregnant for a grown man in church. He was our our youth leader. I had a child, and it was just hell. I lived one of those lives where even today I ask myself, how did you survive? Everyone who reads my book asks the question, how did you survive? And I said, wow. I don't know. Because oh when I got pregnant for him, he, he had the chauffeur take me to his doctor who put me to sleep and who, and then performed an abortion on me. By then the chauffeur had left. I had to find my way home on a bus. I just every five days with a temperature of 105. I don't know how oh. I lived. I had a little girl to take care of. It was hell. And then my mother threw us all out. We all were homeless. This is just a story that you would think no oh. one could have been through this. No, yeah. but I oh did my it. God. I did. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Bless you, bless you, bless you. I'm thinking about a story I read about uh, Laugh to Tell, and that's about a, a woman in Africa. When she, I think it was during a tribal war where she went through. It's just amazing when you hear. And then um, I don't know if you ever heard of this book, A, a, a Child Called It. Oh, yes, I read that. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yes. Oh, that is, oh, my God. When you, that book, when you hear these type of stories, what you went through, that boy and a child called it, you wonder how do, oh, my God. And his mother was probably mentally ill. I mean, I have no doubt. She drank with alcoholism doesn't make you treat people that way. So it's just amazing. It's just amazing what some what some kids go through, and then you have to deal with it off and on for the rest of your life. I wanted to ask you, what what are um, three to four, for people who are where you were, they're not out of it yet. They're where you were. And some of them, I, I had a woman on off the shelf, She again, hers was domestic violence, and she she got out of that house just in time, and what the cops found that what her, her husband had planned to do to her was gruesome. And she just got out in the nick of time. I mean, it was really, really bad. But for people who are where you were, they're not where you are now. They're where you were. And they might be feeling like, is this just the way life is? And that's when I think you, is when you might, you know, people think they're going to want to give up. It's like, is this just the way it is? Is it always this bad? If it is, then I don't want to be here. If it's always this bad, so for somebody who is where you were, can can you, from your personal experience, and this is not something you read in a book for our off the shelf listeners. You never know who tunes in. It could be somebody who tunes in, and this is just what they need. Yeah. Uh, from your personal experience, not something you read in a book or heard in a class. What three to four survival? techniques did you learn that you think could help somebody else today? Okay. I think the first thing is to start talking. Find someone, not just anyone, but find someone, family member, a friend, just someone, one person to confide in. Because, Denise, when you start talking, it opens up a whole new emotion. It slows. It, it you will start crying, and those tears are healing those emotions that, that will come out of you when you start talking, we are going to be embarrassed because what, is, what it is, is is the fear. We are so afraid, as we said earlier, of people finding out our situations or where, where we have been. But start talking to somebody. And let when me, you let start me just, talking... 
I'm sorry. I just want to interject this, and and I agree I agree with that. What 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 do you say maybe as you go through your technique to the person who is afraid to tell because they're afraid that the person they tell will tell us somebody else and it'll get back to their abuser and the abuse will get that much worse. Are you saying if that's, they're afraid that that will happen? Yeah, there are people who may be afraid, okay, if I tell somebody, and then they go tell somebody else, and then it could be the authorities, and then they come knocking on the door investigating. My abuser finds out I told, and then that uh, the, they put on a show for the for the police or the investigators, and they look like an angel, and then they abuse me even that much worse because I told that that is a genuine fear. That is a genuine fear. But sometimes you just need to get out. Okay. Domestic abuse is one of the, the only. I never tell anyone to leave your husband or your wife. But if you are being abused, you need to leave. Mhm. You need to leave. You need to find some place. Right. We're trying to start a shelter here for abused women. If you have to go to a shelter, go to a shelter. Find a family. Find someone and get out of that situation. You are worth more than that. You are better than that. No one has the right to abuse anyone. You Absolutely. do not have the right to abuse a child. You do not have the right yeah. to abuse another adult. No one. Mm-hmm. You are worth more than that. God created yeah. you and made you, gave you power. The Spirit of God lives within you, and that Spirit does not, does not say, yes, here I am, abuse me. So if someone is abusing you, get out. Okay. If you need to run away, run away. Run away to a safe place. Find a shelter. Find a home. Find somebody mm. to help you. And, yeah. then, and that's where you start talking. And then you just need, it is hard, Denise. It is very hard to do. It is not easy. There's nothing easy about it. Nothing. It's one of the hardest things you have to do. It's harder than giving birth. Mm. Because it is not just a physical thing. When you're giving birth, you know you're in labor and it is going to end when you give birth. But this yeah. thing of abuse that is this insidious evil that is crawled inside of you or crawled up upon you and it's happening to you. And because of that, it, it seeps into your soul. And that is what keeps us in bondage. So that's where we are. We are imprisoned by it. And so mm. if you are in that place, listeners, please, please find a way to get out of it. And when I say start talking, believe me, that is what helps me and helps so many other people that I have spoken with to start talking. And then somewhere along the line, you will find the strength. You will find the strength to, to reclaim your life, to reclaim wow. and say, you know what, I am worth something. If you have children, your children is looking at you. Your children are worth your life, even if it's to save your life for your children. You know, that is one of the things that got me through. I have three daughters. And there are mm-hmm. times when I did not want to leave, even before that last episode. But my children, my, I thought of my three girls, and I would say, if I die, who's going to take care of them? They're going to wow. probably abuse the same way that I was. And so that thought kept me going. And I know it's hard, because I know people have children and they can't do that. But somehow I found the tenacity, that strength to draw from my children and look at them and say, oh, my God, I must, to, I must keep putting one foot in front of the other for my wow. girls. Yeah. I must. I think I think children are a lot of a lot of parents' motives just just to keep going. A lot of times when you know you feel tired and weary, you think about your kids or your grandkids, and you're like, you know what? Let me just keep moving forward. I I I and and one thing you know I've heard here in the United States um, when it comes to some forms of violence. Reach out. You can even say to somebody, "Don't send the cops by," or "Don't, don't. I can't. The abuser can't know till I'm ready to leave. So if you're gonna come knocking on the door, be ready to take me out of that house. Don't come knocking on the door as a cop, asking is 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 the child being abused or is the spouse being abused, and then you turn around and walk out the door and leave me leave me there with the person. Don't do that. If you're gonna come and 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 knock on the door, you be prepared to take me out of there. So to say that to you would think authorities would be trained to know that, but I don't think no. they are. So you can let people no. know. So you can start to create a plan, so you can get out and you can you can be safe. You know, sometimes people just go knocking on the door. I'll tell so and so that's not the right approach. If you're leaving the person who's abused in that in that house, don't do that. If you're gonna knock mm-hmm. on the door, get them out, get them out, and get them safe. Then go knocking on doors. <laughs> you know, be yeah. smart about it. 
That's right. Dar- He's Darlene about Sheridan. It. That's right. Darlene Sheridan, who runs a, a nonprofit organization called New Revelations here in Atlanta for domestic abuse, she says that make a plan. Yes. I've had on my show several times talking about it. Make a plan. Start start putting something together. Start, and that's where again you must start talking because you cannot plan without having somebody else on the other end, right? Who's helping you to to activate this plan. So you start thinking, okay, a week, a month, maybe the next time, and you start packing a little bag for yourself and the children, hide it away, and you start putting away a little bit of money if you can, and you start doing those things so that mm-hmm. when the time is right, whatever the time is right for you. Whatever you will, maybe the next time he lifts his hand, maybe when he's out of the house, whenever you feel safe, then you go. But you can't just run out into the night. You must have right. a plan. If it means you go, you find the shelter ahead of time, and so you know when I leave, I know this is where I'm going to. Okay. Is the long wandering, is that a part of the the total book, Odyssey of Survival? The, the long the wandering? Odyssey, yes, it is the second part of the, the um, Odyssey. When I first wrote it, it was so big, the first publisher told me, you need to make this into two books. And so this, the artist, the Long Wandering continues. I actually ended the Odyssey where I left to Jamaica, where I'm on the plane, and then the, okay. the Long Wandering part picks up in Canada and carries the, the story. It's a three-part series. Okay. In, in what specific ways, I know you've heard from readers, you have to have, and I hope your books find their way into the hands of people who are where you once were, and they can read your books, and they can go through each part of the process. They can see that you survived, and you're 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 moving forward and thriving, and then they can know that there's hope. There's hope. And that that is so, you've lived it. You've lived yeah. it. It's not something you read in a book or saw in a movie, so that's so important. When readers come up to you, what specific ways do they share with you that, that your book has helped them to heal. You said it. The word hope. There is so many people say, you know, first of all, I should say that when I'm doing an event, and I'm usually at an event speaking, I have one later this afternoon, usually Saturday or Sunday, and you can tell those, the listeners in the audience who have been abused because they start crying. They just begin to cry. It's, It's book signing. I did one thing which I'll never do again. I opened up to questions. I said, ask me anything, and I will never do that again. I learned. That book signing went on for hours. And oh. you, would, uh, you would shudder if you heard the stories. And oh. each lady would say, well, my story is not as bad as yours. I said, but yes, it is, because it happened, and you had to live through that horror. Yeah. So it is oh my God. Do not negate your story because you say mine was worse. It is no worse. Abuse is abuse in whichever form it takes. Right. And so to answer the question, I would say, but you are here, you have survived, and now that we have survived, we need to do something. Now that we are survivors, like survivors of cancers, breast cancers, or whatever, they run, they do things. We were the, the, the survivors of this type of abuse. We need to do something, and that's what I'm trying to do. I am out there speaking, I'm ministering, I'm saying my message is, there is hope. God will mm. use your ministries to become your ministry. What that ministry is, you now need to turn around and help somebody else. Yeah. You now need to turn around and say, okay, I have lived through this. Hard as it was, I'm, I, I may not be ready to tell my story, but I can help you. I can help you in the ways that you can talk to me. I will tell you where the resources are. I will show yes. you now, look, start looking within yourself and see the wonderful gifts that God has given to you. And each one of us is here for a purpose. God has yes. given us gifts. And we can now use those gifts through all the pain and all the horrors that we have been through. Those gifts are still within us. They're still there. And God is still on his throne. And God is still saying, okay, my child, all these things happen to you. You're still here for a purpose. Because there's a lady over there who needs you, and only you can help her. And there's a gentleman over there, and there's a young girl over there. And that is my my story. Help somebody else. Help wow. Somebody else. How, how long did it take you to write Odyssey of Survival, and, and how many pages are in the book? It took me six months to complete this section of it when I decided where to stop. Okay. And 
six months of writing the entire story, six months of living, reliving it. There were days and weeks when I could not sleep, when I could not write. Oh, <laughs> when I could do nothing because I was just bathed in tears. And wow. so this little one here, it's 100, 173 pages. Okay. It's wow. an easy read. It's yeah, but I know it's, huh? yeah, I know it's powerful with the with the with the experience. It's just the emotional when you got an emotionally charged experience, it can be twenty pages and it can still <laughs> pack a wallop. It's just the the, the, the experiences. What what's the writing process like for you? Do you write in the mornings, the evenings, do you use an outline, character sketches? How do you go about the process of actually developing and creating the the book? I write in the mornings, and I also write at night. Okay. I get up in the mornings when I'm fresh, when my brain is fresh, I do my devotion, and I start writing. During the day, of course, I'm doing the activities of daily living. And at night, when I lie down, even if I do not intend to write, my brain kicks into gear. And sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, and I just have all of these thoughts. So I always have tablets at the, on my bedside with pens, and I'll just write. I can write chapters upon chapters in the middle of the night, which is 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Or if I do not want wow. to wake my husband, I'll get up and go, come downstairs or go into another room and just write. It just flows. It just flows. So I do not really do an outline. Most writers I know have an outline. But I think because it's my story, mm-hmm. it just comes. It just okay. comes as if I open up the floodgates and it just comes I'm now writing another book along with I'm completing the long wandering called The Bridle of the Tongue, which are the things we should use our tongues to do instead of tearing down others. We should use them to praise mm. God. That one, I, do, I did make an outline of that book. And I did make, um, read, wrote out all the chapter names, and then I'm writing under those captions. Okay. Now, do you and your husband lead Revamp My Life Ministries? And what type of services? And you're just talking about helping others. What type of services are offered through the ministry? Through the ministry, I run the food pantry. Okay. Uh, with that food pantry, I feed I feed close to 300 people per month. Wow. Feeding, feeding doesn't mean I give them a meal. I distribute. It's really the distribution. I distribute 100 pounds of food to over 300 families per month. It is subsidized by my church. It does not come out of my pocket. But I, I do all the purchasing from the Atlanta Community Food Bank, and I put it all together. I do the packing, the lifting, the, the, the everything. That's in, until even yesterday, someone called, wanted emergency food. I drove almost an hour to go and give them 100 pounds of food. Wow. And I also run the clothes closet, which yeah, is... Yeah, I wanted the, to ask you, when did you start that ministry and who does it serve? And how can people who want to make donations to Closet Closet or the Food Pantry, how can they make donations as well? Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. I started two years ago. Both I started both, um, both, both ministries simultaneously. There, we run out of Austell, George, because that is where we are located. It is run through my church, which is Grandview Church in Austell. And if you would like to make donations, you can do it through my website, which is, I'll make it easier for you. It is revampmylife.org. Okay. <laughs> I heard when you started, you were trying to read that first one. I switched from that. I could not even say that word myself. Oh, you said it's revampmylife? So revampmylife.org. Revampmylife.org. That is the name of my ministry. And for my ministry, I also have a mentoring program called LIDS, Ladies in Divine Service. What that is, a group group of us as ladies, I um, established this to help the community. So the same people who come to to my church for food, we have begun a mentoring program wherein we adopt the families. Each person adopts three or four families with children, and we mentor mm-hmm. those families. We are helping them with their school studies. We are helping the parents. Some of them have never finished high school. So we're helping them with their GEDs. We're helping the children with their homework. We're, we have young men at church. We're helping the young men to, to become men. Because sometimes we forget about the men, the young men, and that's why sometimes mm-hmm. we, we run into all of these problems. Yes. And that's what yes. it is. Yes, I also have a reading program. 
Okay. I operate, I operate that as a library where I have all these books, gotten donations of books. Many of them came from my home, and I've just gotten books from everyone I know. And people can come in and borrow the books on the library system, which means you borrow for two weeks, you bring it back, you exchange. So I've gotten to know I have the community reading. Okay, that is so, it's just so wonderful. Thank you so much for all you're doing. And for those who want to donate again, uh, you can go to the website, revamp, R-E-V-A-M-P, mylife.org, revampmylife.org. And again, that's revampmylife.org. And you can make donations for this wonderful work. She has a clothing ministry, a food ministry. They do do reading and mentoring and various other programs. Are you ready, Marsha, to read an excerpt from Odyssey of Survival? Or do you need a few I more am. minutes? Okay. I am. And, and I must say on the website, you can also purchase my book on the website. There, okay. And I, I also have a journal called Life's Journal. Okay. So your books can all be purchased right there on my website. Are you ready for me to read it? I'm absolutely ready. All right, let's see. I am going to read it. It's an excerpt from Chapter 3. Okay. Chapter 3, which is sold for a fistful of dollars. Sold for a fistful mm. of dollars. I'll try to keep it. Let's see, where do I want to start? What are you doing? All right, just a, a little backdrop. This is when I was 12 years old. My mom took me up to my godfather, said he was a minister in the government, and my godfather, she took me to the home, and she told me to do whatever I'm told to do, and this is just a bad job. And so after we have talked for a while, all the maids and the chauffeurs are gone home, but she sends me, tells me to go with him. Mm-hmm. And so now I pick up reading from here. We're sitting in the room, and this is my godfather speaking. He says to me, how are you doing in school? Are you getting good grades? What are you, what's your favorite subject? Are you being a good girl? I answer all his questions. He then begins running his hand over my newly pressed hair, telling me how pretty I am and how nice my hair looks. I thank him. His hand travels to my knee and begins a journey to where I don't want to know. I shift my body. Moving my legs away from him, he roughly pulls them back, telling me to be a good girl. I know that this is wrong. He should not be touching my legs, attempting to get his hand under my skirt. I pull my skirt down further, adjusting my body further away from him. He yanks up my skirt and tries sticking his hand between my legs. Tears are running down my face. I jump up from the bed, running to the door. No, please, let me go back outside to Mama. He grabs my arm, shoving me back down on the bed, and I'm crying loudly. What are you doing, I ask. He ignores my question, trying to get on top of me. Stop it, Uncle Norrington. Please stop it. Cursing under his breath, he opens the door. I immediately jump off the bed, thinking he's allowing me to go free. Instead, he sticks his head out the door, and he calls for my mother. I'm standing directly behind him, crying. Surely she will rescue me from this wretched man. Mother treads the stairs to the room. He steps halfway out the door and speaks to her. Talk to her. She's not cooperating. My mother walks into the room. I look up at her expectantly. She slaps my face, yelling, mm. What is the matter with you? Didn't I tell you to do as you are told? Get back into that room and don't make me have to come back up here or you will be sorry. Turning on her heels, she walls out of the room. He comes back in and this time he locks the door behind him, pocketing the key. Get on the bed, he orders. I stand my ground crying. He grabs my arm, viciously pulling me towards the bed, pushing me down on it. With all my strength, I fight, but could not fight off the advances of a 62-year-old man who has my mother's permission to rape me. He's trying to yank off my panties, and I'm fighting to keep my legs tightly crossed. I sob loudly from deep within. He pushes my legs apart, letting go of my right leg. I immediately draw it up to my chest. He grabs my heel, pulling it back down. He uses his right knee to keep my legs down and apart. He now has me pinned down on the bed. My panties have been thrown someplace, and my legs are apart. I'm crying. He uses his right hand to guide himself as he plunges his manhood into my 12-year-old virgin body. I scream as the air rushes out of my lungs. He firmly claps his hand over my mouth. I bite his hand, but that has no effect on him. He is bent on raping me and I'm powerless to stop him. Wow. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh my goodness. 
And 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 you, you, I thank you for reading an excerpt from Odyssey of Survival. I can only imagine how many, as much as you don't want to think that happens to other people, I know it does. Oh, well, it does. As much as you, as much as you don't want to think it does, I know it does. And and it does. and uh, that, that is it, it's, you know. And then that's where you said the, the importance of talking because you think you're the only one. It happens to when it happens, but. Again, then you when you start talking, and that's one of the reasons uh, they have a lot of what they call support groups. You meet yeah. people and you hear their stories, and you're like, "Oh my God, you can't believe how many other people go through the same thing or similar situation." And it just that blows your mind that yeah. people are walking around like this stuff never even happened to them. And then when you get to know people and they talk, you're like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> yes, it does. And it's oh hard to God. catch my breath in a minute because it still makes me cry. <laughs> oh, no, that is, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And then, and then you know, just like with the thing they had here, uh, I think it was, I don't know if it was Penn State, where that football coach was uh, supposedly helping those yeah. little kids, and then he was molesting them. And sometimes when people are older, I think because – Number one, they're 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 older, so people just don't think they would ever molest a kid. They're older, or they're married, or they're in a position of power—a minister, yeah. a coach, a yeah. school teacher. People just assume, well, these yeah. people would never do that. A yeah. police officer, a judge, they just think, yeah. well, they. And so when a kid tells, nobody believes them because they're thinking, no. So and so's a minister, so and so's a school teacher, so and so's a police officer or an, or an attorney. You must be lying. Yes. They just yes, don't. And and yes, yes. I'm sorry, but I, I just want to say that that's one of the points of my book. They say, he was my God, he was a minister in the government. There were times when he was acting prime minister of the country, of the island. Who am I going to tell? I can't go to the police. Yes. Who am I oh going to tell? Nobody I'm so. I am. I am so glad that you got out of that. I am so glad. I'm thinking about Joyce Meyer. I don't know if you heard of her. Oh, her yeah. father. Her father abused her for years. And and uh, oh my god. I'm just glad that you got out of that situation. Wow. Right. And then you know what? As I was listening to you when you were reading about your mother's response, I sat here and wondered. It did something like that happen to the mother, and she never told? Did the mother, did your mother herself, and she may never tell it, go through something like that when she was a child, and she relived it through her own daughter? Who knows? I don't. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But when you were reading that, that thought popped into my head. Did this ha- something similar happen to the mother? She never told it. If you ask her, she might lie, deny it and say no, but. Is that what made her the way she became? She became that way for a reason. Something yes, must have happened to her. Yes, yeah, so and we've spent all, all of our lives wondering. And one of my readers asked me once, did you try to talk to her? And I said, yes. As a matter of fact, at one point, all of us went to Jamaica. We became adults to, to speak with her. And she just started crying and yelling that we were trying to beat her. And we left her alone. And she died in 08. And by then, I'd made peace with her because there was a period of time when I would not speak with her. I just did not talk to her. And But, but the thing about it, Denise, is that you're right that something like this must have happened, which we do not know, because I am not the only one. All of us as girls, all of us, as far as I know, were sold to, to, the, to this gentleman. As a matter of fact, one of my oldest sisters had a child for him when she was 14 years old. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking did he did he even maybe rape your mother? I don't know. I don't I'm, think I'm, he raped her. I think they had a relationship because she was a good. I think they had a relationship, or we always suspected that they 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 had a sexual relationship. It was not out in the open, but something very secret. We did suspect that. Yeah, there's a reason why she did. I, we don't just do things like that for no reason, and maybe she buried it. We, again, you said to talk about it because when we bury things in our subconscious, we they're not gone, and we can act them out and not even know why we're doing something. We can act it out and not even know why we're doing it because we didn't bring it to the light. Like you said, talking about it, we hit it, 
and now it's 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 doing its work and we can't even see that it's still there doing its work. That the talk about it is such good advice. I don't care what you go through in life because to try to hide, we cannot hide things. It's still in your system. I'm saying this more to our listeners. It's still in your system somewhere and it's going to reveal itself. You just do things or say things or snap and not know why, and it's because that thing you've hidden and haven't done, dealt with and brought to the light, is still working on the inside of you. So that's why you we have to bring things to the light so we can heal and let them go. And that's that's the only way. That's the only way. Now, you also write articles about healthy foods, and I wanted to ask, have you always been health conscious I know, you know, we're dealing with like obesity and uh, fast food here. And, uh, and uh, two questions: Have you always been health conscious? And do people in Jamaica, uh, their diet? Do they have as many fast food restaurants? And do y'all eat as many <laughs> potato chips and Doritos and ice cream as in the U.S. In different countries, people eat differently. Do do you, did you come here and say, my God, the way people eat over here? No, no, I'm, I was not always health conscious, no. I've become health conscious for the last few years of my life as I've gone older and gained some weight, and I started looking at the food, and I started watching some of these documentaries, the fat, sick, and, and, and nearly dead, and food fights, and see the way our meat is treated, the way the animals are treated, the way the food is processed, and I've just gotten an aversion for it. Right now, I'm really trying not to eat meat at all. But I've just mm-hmm. that is something new. My daughter, my second daughter, is very health conscious, and I see how healthy she is, and, and, and just and I've always wanted that. And the only way she said, "Ma, you just have to change the way you eat." And so I'm actually learning to be health conscious from my my daughter. And no, we do not have those health these um, fast food stores in Jamaica. Wow. Now we do because America have got um, gone yeah. down there and opened up McDonald's and opened up Kentucky Fried Chicken and of course you're going to gravitate to it because it's easy. Children will always like the yeah. fatty foods. But in Jamaica we live off the land. We live off okay. the land. You, you go outside and pick some ackee. Ackee is our national fruit. I don't know if you know what it is. It's you know, I don't. Do you know ackee? No. What's it taste like? Is it like a is it sweet? You said it's a fruit. Is it taste like a? It's, it's a vegetable. It's a fruit or a vegetable. We don't know what it is. It's um, most Americans says it looks like scrambled egg, but seasoned. Oh, okay. And so we okay. eat the bananas. The, the way we eat ripe bananas here, we we have them growing in our backyard, all over the place. You go to the market, and it's a produce from the land. It's a yam and the the bananas and the cocos and the, the, and fruits, abundance of mangoes and. These berries and every fruit that you can think of. And that's what we grew up eating, just the fresh fruits. We did not know what it was to open a package. We didn't know what a microwave was. We didn't know what it was to do anything except your mother cooked the food every day and you ate it. And you go outside and play and you walk everywhere pretty much that you want to get to until you're healthy. But as okay. I said, now Jamaica is becoming like, like, of course, McDonald's and everything like that. So the children are eating more of that food than than we did when I was a younger person. Do people live longer in Jamaica? Absolutely. Do they have li- Okay. Absolutely. Most of your grandparents, they live to 96, 98. They're in their 90s. They're in their 90s because they really do, and those people do not know what it is to eat packaged food. The animals, wow. the animals are growing in their backyard. The chickens, they have the chickens growing in their backyard, eating corn and grain and whatever. And they, their goats are grown right there. We eat goats, which is called curry goats. They, you you have your goats rarely in your backyard. If you have a party, you go out, you kill a goat. And if the, the one person, a farmer down the street has something that you don't have, you barter or you exchange produce and you you exchange fruits. And, and that's just a wonderful way of life how it is in the island. And then we have the beach, so you go out to the seaside and you get your fish right out of the ocean. The, the fish wow. are there and you go right to the ocean and buy your fish, take it home, scale it, and make your meal. The callaloos, all the greens, they just grown, grown in the yard. Wow. We we have, in America, we have, well, you know, you've been here several years. We have, you know, the medicine that we have, but we don't live as long as people in other countries. And And I was reading a book, I think it was called, 
I want to say Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, and he said there was a place in Pennsylvania, and they found that people who have they have more closer, their neighbors are like friends and family. They live longer than people who, you know, you just go to work, you barely know your neighbors. And they say that people who have closer relationships tend to live longer. And that's another thing that probably in areas where you said everybody knows everybody. That's how my grandmother grew up. And in India, I have a friend who lives in the U.S. She went to India for 30 days, and I said, asked her, I said, you loopy, you did you go on a diet? You lost weight. She said, No, I just was eating normal Indian food. <laughs> she said, I was eating like a feast. But she wasn't eating the American food and she lost like thirty pounds without trying. Yeah. It just fell off of her. So it you know, our diets. We only have about four minutes left. I have you don't know how much I've enjoyed talking to you today. You're doing so much in the community, I wanted to, to to touch on one thing before we close up. You also wrote an article titled "Too Much TV Psychologically Harms Kids." Why do you say this, and what do you think is too much television, like two hours a day, et cetera? And did you watch TV when you were a kid? I'll answer the second part first in the last few minutes. Yes, we watched television, but we had one black and white TV with one channel, which came on at 6 p.m. and ended at midnight. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. And so we watched TV for maybe two, three hours on a Sunday. Okay. No TV during the week because we had homework to do. And is, and so I know we don't have a lot of time. I think too much TV is when a child comes home from school. Of course, parents have to work. Most children are latchkey children. They come in, they sit down in front of their television. They eat their food, their meals right in front of the television. If They, they do their homework right there, and they stay there until all hours of the night watching okay. television. I think that is just too much television. You need to broaden your mind. You need to read a book. Mm-hmm. You need to go outside I- and get some fresh air and play two hours per day I think that that's quite enough for a child and another yeah. thing quickly every room has a television it's from the baby is born there's a television in that room as a child becomes a teenager you don't have control over the child you are going to bed the child is going to turn the television on I have a, a stepson who's 12 years old and every night at 2-3 o'clock we have to get up and turn off the television because although we say don't turn it on of course he's going to turn it on it's just right. so much television it influences too much because what they're looking at what they're hearing, it is getting down in their subconscious, and they want to act it out. They want to eat all of this stuff. So I really think it's just too much TV. Yeah, I agree with you because whatever enters that eye gate or that ear gate, man, it's it's going in the system. How can yes. organizations, churches, and book clubs, how can they contact you? You are such a joy. How can they contact you to schedule you if they say, you know, they, they want you to do a book sign, they want you to come speak at an event? How, how can these people contact you? Seven seven zero three one three one five zero seven. I'll say that again. Seven seven zero three one three one five zero seven. And I'm open to bookings anywhere, any place. Let me know. Buy me a ticket, and I'll be there. Okay, okay. And you, 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 you would be a joy. Such a, such a treasure. Now, people can get your books. You said at your website. And they can, and then they can also get it at the revampmylife.org website. Where are some other places? Is it Amazon? Where are some other places can our listeners get a copy of no your book? No other place yet. I am trying to get it on Amazon. You know, it's a new release, so I am trying to get it, get it on ebook and Amazon. I'm not there yet. I am working on that, and as soon as I get that together, we will be out there some more. But right now, are it's you on, on my website, or I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I said, and, or you can give me a call and I will, you know, mail it out to you. It's pretty much how I did most of my sales, pretty much just mailing, people calling, sending me an email. My email address is info.revampmylife at gmail.com, info.revampmylife at gmail.com. So if someone wants to send me an email with your address or where do I mail a check or what do I do, you can contact me either, way, either of those ways and I will get you a oh. copy of the book. Okay, we have been speaking with Marsha. Oh, my God, Marsha O'Connor. What? Oh, my goodness, what a joy. You have blessed me 
just to connect with you today. She's online at revampmylife.org, R-E-V-A-M-P, mylife.org. You can learn about her ministries if you want to make a donation. You can also contact her if you want her to come speak at an event, and I'm sure your listeners would absolutely love to have her have her there. And you can also get a copy of her book, Odyssey of Survival. Her, her other book is The Long Wondering. What a joy, what a joy, what a joy she has been. Go out and support Marsha O'Connor whenever you listen to this uh, tape, whether you listen to it today or you listen to it sometime in the future. Please go get a copy of Odyssey of Survival and check it out, revampmylife.org. And she's trying to get it on Amazon, but you can get it at her website right now. Thank you so much, Marsha. Oh, my goodness, you are a treasure. And as I tell all of our listeners at Off the Shelf, remember you're so truly valued and so incredibly blessed. Please come back next Saturday, 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Tell your family, your colleagues, and your friends to tune in to Off the Shelf. We will bring you another phenomenal guest. And, Marsha, you are just absolutely amazing. Thank you, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so, so much. And, and, as, and as I close, and I tell you, go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. And if you're, you're, you're compelled to help somebody, go do that. Thank oh, you man. so much, Marsha. Be blessed. Thank Bye you. for now. Thank I'll shoot you, you an email. Bye-bye.